Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and my guest today, David Weiner. David, how are you? Pleasure to be back. Pleasure to be talking with you today. For those who don't know, you are the director of the incredible documentary, In Search of Darkness. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about that film? Absolutely. That movie is a documentary, but it's not your average documentary. It's a four and a half hour documentary about 80s horror movies, focusing on the decade itself, year by year, uh, with larger context chapters in between each year. We go down each, uh, many of the movies, definitely not each of the movies, because there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, but each year we go down talk about a bunch of the, 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 the greatest horror movies, some of the more eclectic horror movies, everything from The Thing to Reanimator to Halloween 2 to Killer Clowns from Outer Space. It really runs the gamut. And we've got upwards of 50 icons from the era, whether it's uh, director John Carpenter or Heather Langenkamp from Nightmare on Elm Street or Barbara Crampton from, from Beyond and Reanimator. Uh, we get to hear the stories from these stars and these, you know, the special effects titans, the, the composers, uh, a wide variety of folks who were part of the scene and influenced by the scene. And I, of course, have seen this multiple times. The film is available right now on Shudder. And one of the things I want to just briefly talk about, the producers and you, you guys went through a, a, a kind of a unique approach when it came to funding this film. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that approach. Yeah, this is a this is a crowdfunded film. This started out as a uh, uh, the idea of executive producer Robin Block, uh, a UK producer. Uh, he, he put together a film called In Search of the Last Action Heroes. And he wanted to continue that search and go into the horror genre and then go into the sci-fi genre and and tackle a variety of genres so when in search of darkness which would be only focusing on 80s horror specifically came about he decided to kickstart it and then we did an indiegogo and then uh in addition to uh, exceeding our goal in, in 24 hours and, and finding that there was a, a tremendous enthusiastic response for this concept uh, and the amount of uh, uh, talent that we got involved in this project, uh, we, we decided we would release it to the public as well and distribute it ourselves versus originally going, the thought process was to go with a distributor. And we found that all that blood, sweat and tears, the turnaround once you get, go with a, a, a wider distributor, it really dilutes your return and so we've been doing this as a small team all ourselves and it's a real labor of love and it's essentially by the fans for the fans overall you must be just incredibly delighted with the response that this first film got i mean you must be over the moon because it is especially in the horror movie circles that i uh, i i have conversations with i mean this film in search of darkness it's always topic number one have you seen this movie yet have you seen it and we, you know it's just it's incredible so i have to ask you like overall what are your thoughts on the response that this first film got i am blown away by this response uh i never expected you know you hope people will like it um i also knew that it was a very long sit and that had a lot of things working against it. Uh, I also know it's not the first of its kind, um, but I did think it was unique in two different ways. One, uh, that it is focusing only on the 80s and not a subgenre of the 80s or a history of horror. Uh, that's one thing that makes it uh, unique. Um, and then the other element was, uh, I think, the running time makes it very unique. I guess there's three. I'm losing count already. But the, the, the running, running count, I think, is was something that would 
looking at other films like Never Sleep Again about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and Crystal Lake Memories about the Friday the 13th franchise and the fact that those were successes and people were more than willing and, and happy to sit down and relive those those movies and learn more about them for four to six hours. Never Sleep Again is four, four-ish hours. Uh, Crystal Lake Memories is six-ish hours. It indicated to me that there's an, a, a diehard audience that really wants to relive all of this stuff and 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 reminisce and learn new things and just sort of wallow in the in the in the happy mud that these movies these movies provide i say that in the best way you know best intentions and um but i think another element that makes this movie different that i think people respond to is that the people who are in this film in addition to talking about their own projects and telling un- unheard stories and and new insights they talk about their favorite films. They talk about the genre. They talk about their their influences, and they they focus on other movies entirely. So you know, if you have Joe Dante talking about why he loves Killer Clowns, all of a sudden you have a whole new generation of people who dismissed that film or didn't even hear of that film, and now they're like, wait, the guy who directed The Howling and Gremlins thinks Killer Clowns is one of the, one of his favorite films. All right, now I have to pay attention. And and the movie I think uh, which I didn't necessarily expect, although. The, the format really calls for it is that it ultimately came became this sort of curation if you if you know a lot of these films if you don't know a lot of these films if halloween is coming up this is the perfect list to say what have i seen what can i revisit what have i never heard of you know so many people were first exposed to whether it was fate to black with dennis christopher or society by brian yuzna through in search of darkness, uh, I'm I'm happy that people are using it as a, a jumping off point for their own cues and curation lists. We're uh, we're talking with David Weiner, director of In Search of Darkness, and David. I will say this, and I mentioned this when we talked uh, a few months ago that this documentary did exactly what you just said there. It created such a call to action for me because I I consider myself to be a proficient movie watcher and feel like I've got my ear to the ground. But there was, frankly, there was a number of movies in this documentary that I had not seen. And believe me, over that, you know, three or four month period, I I got them all in and it it was awesome. But I have to ask you this. So this movie, this documentary, it's, it's wildly popular. It's it's doing great numbers. There's a lot of momentum behind it. There's going to be a sequel. Talk to us about the sequel. There, there's, I mean, because that's one thing horror movies are famous for is franchise sequels, sequels. This is a wildly popular documentary. There's got to be a sequel. Let's talk about it. Well, I think the third one has to be in 3D, don't you? Exactly. Yes. And the 10th one's going to be in space. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Uh, in Search of Darkness X, uh, where we cryogenically freeze the faces of people and then smash them against the counter. Yes. Um, and then go to a holodeck to revisit our favorite moments. <laughs> yes. um, In Search of Darkness Part 2 is something that uh, was never... This, this is a genuine statement. Uh, we weren't like, all right, we're going to do In Search of Darkness, and then In Search of Darkness 2, 3, 4, or whatever it comes afterwards. It was a, it was a small project that... that that ballooned into a much bigger project. The, the more talent that came on, the longer the running time got. And it was never intended even to be a four-hour film. It was supposed to be 90 minutes, maybe two hours. And if we re- reached our stretch goals, we could maybe go to three hours. Uh, and then we just blew that out of the water. And so all of the interviews that I conducted uh, for the first one were an hour, two hours, sometimes more. And you do the math where you have close to 50 people and then you have a four and a half hour movie. There's a wealth of material that's just 
waiting to be used. And so as I was putting this movie together, part one, um, and having to kill babies left and right, that means, you know, you put you put segments together about a movie or a section or just great bites. Uh, and then you just have to make very difficult decisions saying just for running time, we have to cut it out. I had always hoped in the back of my mind that we'd be able to have an experience where we could do another film. Wouldn't even be sure how to structure it necessarily, but we have all this great material and there are so many more films to cover. Uh, in Search of Darkness, part one only scratches the surface. Uh, and I focused only on North American films. And I did that reluctantly, but I needed to uh, be able to harness all this material in some manageable way without it being an unfocused, all over the map mess. Um, and that's how I chose to do it. But I was always uh, chomping at the bit where, you know, people would say, well, where's this movie? Where's that movie? Where's where's Shocker? Where's Razorback? Where's Bad Taste? Where's Dario? I don't see any, you know, there's a mention of Dario Argento, but I don't see any of his movies. You know, where's the Italian horror? Um, that's stuff I all wanted in the first one. But uh, I, I'm so pleased that due to the success of part one, we get to keep exploring. We get to go into the, 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 the deeper, darker recesses of what the genre had to offer, whether it was uh, a, a, a description of what the, the video nasties were or, you know, the, the, the trend of, of, of cannibal horror found footage movies or uh, uh, Faces of Death, where we'd all sit with a bootleg tape. When I say all, that means myself and my friends, but well. many of us had a collective experience. <laughs> You know, before that, you could get that in a video store, and a lot of video stores refused to carry it. That, if you saw Faces of Death, which for people who might not be familiar with that, that's uh, essentially positions itself as a snuff film. Uh, you get to see people dying for real. Some of us would say, "Oh my God, have you heard of this movie? You got to see it." And someone would have that 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 copied, 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 dubbed, copied version you know, grainy version of the faces of death. But what I'm getting at is that, first of all, we all weren't, you know, chomping at the bit to see a snuff film, but we all discovered what that movie really was. And that movie was more of a, uh, it was a, it was a rite of passage to, in our adolescence to see a movie like that. And also maybe discover, wait, maybe it's not really a snuff film. Maybe they just sort of positioned it that way and showed some horrible killings of animals. But, you know, what I'm getting at is, is that the rabbit hole, you know, see, this, this takes you down, Faces of Death takes you down a dark <laughs> rabbit hole. But there were a lot of really interesting trends that we discovered and that we participated in and that we did everything we could to also avoid afterwards <laughs> once we got our, our taste of it uh, in that era. So whether we're getting a broader international uh, taste this time around or movies like that, or just sort of the, the lesser-known franchises. You know, Omen 3 came out, you know, during that time. You've got these amazing movies. We now have uh, 15 new faces, in addition to 40 original faces being carried over with all that material. Uh, I did 23 new interviews. That's uh, um, So there's a bunch of returning folks, and like I said, 15 new faces, such as... Robert England, Freddy Krueger himself, Tom Savini, the legendary effects master, Nancy Allen, Linnea Quigley, Jaretta Jaretta of Demons, the the the, the Bava Italian uh, horror film, 
Uh, Shinya Sukamoto, who directed Tetsuo, the Iron Man. I got to interview him while he was in Tokyo. Um, we managed to get a bunch of great new faces and perspectives to continue this conversation, create a brand new film that is the exact same structure, 1980 to 1989, going several films within and then a chapter in between each all brand new material, all unseen material, all new commentary, all new discussion. And it's another four and a half hour film. <laughs> and it sounds like I could talk four and a half hours about it. But there's there's just so much ground to cover. And we're very excited to get to continue the story. Where are you in the process right now? What is the status as far as, you know, pending release dates, availability? I mean, I know there's people just chomping at the bit to see this film. Yeah, the movie is done. The movie is completely done in that we have filmed it and we have, I have edited the rough cut with Samuel Way, my editor from the first one. And uh, again, he makes it fly. Uh, you won't believe how fast four plus hours can go. Um, we're now in the polish of it. Uh, so, you know, the graphics and, you know, the, the sound mix and uh, Weary Pines is back doing the soundtrack uh, uh, with, no, with new material. Um, it's very exciting. You could, uh, And what we're doing is we're, we're selling it ourselves between now and Halloween at midnight. It's the only time you can get it. And so the way it works is we're selling it where it's a presale. Uh, if you go to 80shorrordoc.com uh, or any of our, our uh, social media at 80shorrordoc, uh, you can find your way to it. But uh, and you could you can see the trailer, you can see all sorts of material. Uh, we're, we're doing a presale where you can get your name in the credits. Uh, and it's so you can get your credit alongside you know Robert England and and uh, you know uh, Barbara Crampton. How cool is that? And it's a part of a, a package where we're, we're, we're all sorts of goodies that you get. You get uh, three posters, you get the soundtrack, you get a digital copy of the film, uh, you get the physical copy in your hand, Blu-ray or DVD. If you missed In Search of Darkness Part 1, you get a digital copy of that and an option to also buy a physical copy of that if you'd like. And we're also doing this this. We've created this community. You get an enamel pin. I mean, it's all sorts of cool swag. You get, if you go to 80shorrordoc.com, you know, if, you, if you're looking for Ginsu knives, you may or may not find them. But what's cool also is that we're, we, we decided that this is real a real experience that people have responded to. And there's a whole community element of enthusiastic fans that want to talk with each other and, and share these lists from the movie um, on letterboxed people, people will watch the movie and they'll catalog every single film that's in, in Search of Darkness because people are saying, I need a list so I can, I can use that to watch, watch and go through all the horror movies that I wanted to see, but I never saw. So we've created a, an online Discord community and you get a 12 month pass to that as well if you get this at 80shorrordoc.com before. Uh, midnight on Halloween. And on that Discord community, you, we are having watch parties where you have a Q&A with talent from the movie itself. For, so, for example, our first one, we had Reanimator, and you could talk to Jeffrey Combs. He was there interacting with fans and talking about his favorite moments and, you know, lament, lamenting the loss of the, the late, great Stuart Gordon. Um, and it's been super fun. It's a very uh, welcoming environment. It's very uh, uh, not clicky not cynical and judgmental it's like we all love these movies for different reasons because they're important and they're close to our heart whether it is killer clowns or or whether it is uh you know uh gosh there's so many you know the stuff by by larry cohen or the shining or anything in between this stuff 
matters to us. And we love to talk about it. We love to explain why. And you don't have to defend it uh, on that Discord. Okay. So it, it, it's, a cool, it's a cool opportunity. I love it. And that's 80shorrordoc.com. And for the listeners, there's a link in this episode's show notes. You can, you can literally click on the link where you're listening to us talk right now. David, I have to ask you because these are, you know, we're recording in October of 2020. This is, uh, you know, of course, for everybody, crazy times, if you will. Can you talk a little bit about some of the the challenges that you faced putting this film together versus, you know, when you were working on the original In Search of Darkness, we weren't going through the situation we're going through now. And I'm curious about, you know, what if any challenges came up or arose in the, you know, uh, you know, pre-production and the production of this sequel? I would say we really kind of had to play a waiting game. Um, we the The goal was to get a lot of the people who we couldn't get the first time around in the film, whether uh, it was just for a time or, or a connection obstacle. This time around, uh, we, we reached out to a lot of those folks and we were so happy that even some of them, you know, Robert Englund and Tom Savini, for example, they were like, I saw the movie and I said, where am I? I'm happy to be in this. And that, that's just music to my ears. Um, but we had to play, play about a three-month waiting game of you just can't go out. Uh, so that really hampered production. And then once we were able to go out and start filming interviews, like I said, I, I got 23 interviews. Um, the problem was, is a lot of people didn't still want to come out. So when we would do interviews, we were doing the socially distanced. Everyone was wearing masks. We would wipe things down. It was in a small studio where there were a limited amount of people. It was just my cameraman and myself and the talent. Cameraman wore the masks the whole time. Uh, this is our, our cinematographer, Octay Ordobasi, really great guy in Burbank, California. Um, we'd sit about 12 feet away during our conversation and, you know, only take our masks off while we were sitting on camera doing the talking, doing everything we could. Uh, but even with those uh, very specific intentional precautions being taken, there were still people who didn't, you know, they, they had agreed to do it. And I said, here's when we have available times. And they said, David, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, I'll do it on Zoom, but I, I, I can't go out. And I'd say, well, we, you know, due to the quality of the film and, and, and the resolution we had to do it on our own cameras but i understand it i understand completely you know so we had some really great names that perhaps another time uh we'll, we'll have an opportunity to sit with them uh so given the fact that we kind of did production of all the new stuff with kind of one hand tied behind our back uh i'm actually very proud of how much we achieved and how much amazing material we got and robert england invited me to come to his house and i sat down there for sat on camera with him for three hours it more than makes up for for some of the other things that we what we weren't able to get, and uh, you know the other element of being sort of in a in a cocoon or in hibernation for three months based on COVID, uh, it gave me plenty of time to work with my uh, my editor Samuel Way to cut all this amazing material from the first film and and fine tune it and shape it and create new avenues of discussion and you know looking at that footage again and and the the tangents that we would take gave me ideas for certain topics that i hadn't initially thought of because i outlined this entire movie uh top to bottom uh, and i write the the questions in relation to the topics and the movies that we want to discuss and the, what we want to discuss within these movies so it was actually kind of a blessing in disguise because I could focus on that and and build an entire movie and then shape the rest of the new material around what I had built 
in the time that we had uh, indoors, essentially. We're talking with David Weiner. We're discussing In Search of Darkness and the follow-up sequel that's coming out soon, In Search of Darkness Part 2. David, I have to ask you, keeping this spoiler-free because, you know, you said the movie is done, but it's not out just yet. People can go to 80shorrordoc.com if they want to go ahead and get that purchase, that pre-order purchase. You said there's a, there's it's up until October 31st. There's a, mm-hmm. yep, I'm looking for it. You can count me in on that. That's definitely well, going to be done you. as soon yeah. as soon as we're done uh, talking here. But I have to ask you again, keeping the spoiler free. I know you've we've talked in the past and you've you've mentioned that you've had opportunities previously prior to even getting into these documentaries to talk to talk to a lot of these guests that you've had on on these two movies. But mm-hmm. was there anything in the second film talking to anyone specifically that you learned that was new to you that surprised you that you're like, oh, I didn't know that. And I know, you know, I don't want to spoil anything about this, this upcoming movie. But I'm just curious, like, was there a, kind of like an aha moment for you? I don't know if there was an aha moment. Uh, you know, I, I want to say that there were I, I had a smile on my face left and right uh, because I had I had a, a much more specific handle on things this time around. Last time around was also I, I, I approached the, the first film very much in the same way. But um, because it was such a, a, a unwieldy topic so many films i really didn't quite know how many films we would ultimately be able to get locked down um and so when i wanted to go on you know i mean i wanted to do a whole chapter on italian horror but that doesn't mean everyone knows the ins and outs and the nuances of you know fulci and baba and Lindsay and you know um uh, argento and uh, you know, what, what Italian Jalo is all about. And, um, you know, so to find people, uh, whether they were, uh, on camera filmmakers or, uh, uh, online, you know, journalists, you know, like Phil, Phil Noble of, uh, uh, Phil Noble Jr. of Fangoria. He came back for another interview, Heather Wixon of, uh, uh, Daily Dead, the managing min- uh, editor. She came back. These people really know their stuff, and these could they could really color out the corners. But there were some other elements, like uh, you know, I had Steve Johnson, uh, who's who's a effects legend. I mean, he was he was this young kid working on American Werewolf in London. Uh, he did everything from. I mean, he created Slimer for Ghostbusters. He worked on Fright Night, uh, um, and he would talk about you know he's he's very candid. You know, I talk about you know working on Humanoids from the Deep for Roger Corman and. Um, you know, he obviously is knowledgeable about many things that went down in the industry, and he definitely has no filter. So some of his stories are pretty raucous to tell. Um, but there's a movie called uh, The Beast Within that a lot of people talk about as being, uh, you know, Joe Dante kind of felt like it was the nadir of bladder special effects. That was kind of a new thing. And uh, Steve Johnson sort of gave me this wonderful insight about why what people kind of think is terrible in this this sort of transformation moment on screen of the teen who becomes this the the beast within comes out and everyone's horrified but it's really kind of goofy because it's early special bladder effects um he he explained the story as to why that was the way it was and i won't spoil that story but he explained you know you all think that it's nuts and it's crazy and it's over the top and it's just not very good but here's there's a reason and don't blame the guy who did the effects for it because he did great effects, but then the director wanted to do something else, and that's what ended up on screen. 
And that's kind of a fun little story to tell. Um, there were just so many little nuggets. And for me, it's, um, you know, talking to Clancy Brown. And uh, he's one of my all-time favorite actors. And, you know, we all know him from uh, Highlander and, and Shawshank Redemption. And, you know, but he was also, he was he played the Frankenstein's monster in The Bride with Sting and Jennifer Beals. And so, we, you know, he's talking about that. But to, to hear him get all excited talking about altered states or The Keep by Michael Mann, you know, or Angel Heart and, you know, Robert De Niro, you know, biting into that egg as, as Satan himself. <laughs> it's that's Those are the magic moments that I'm excited to share on screen. I'm excited to see this, David. I'm really, really excited. So naturally, the follow-up question when talking about a, a, a sequel, you know, you said that In Search of Darkness Part 2 is, again, focusing from 1980 to 1989. The first film got an amazing response. I know this one's going to get an amazing response. Like I said, I can't wait to see it. Two questions. Do you have enough material for an In Search of Darkness Part 3 covering covering <laughs> the 80s? And if the answer to that is no, do you tackle the 70s or the 90s next? Because I, I know that discussion has had to happen. Absolutely. That discussion has happened. And uh, I can tell you, I've already had to kill... Uh, an hour of material that I completed for In Search of Darkness Part 2. So if In Search of Darkness Part 2 does as well as we hope, uh, there's always the possibility of doing another In Search of Darkness, and there will be a home for a lot of these cool movies and discussions about uh, things, chapters I won't reveal, um, that uh, I would I would love to do another one. Um but there's also absolutely there's discussions for other decades. Uh, people have been asking a lot for those other decades. I would love to do it in search of darkness for the 70s. But I think um, given the distance that we are from that decade, uh, uh, sadly and unfortunately, a lot of the, the talent who was involved in that has kind of aged out uh, uh, or are, are less. Uh, the memories aren't as crystal clear. Uh, for some, uh, whereas 90s, it's a lot more fresh and there's still plenty of folks around. And uh, we even might have some material for In Search of Darkness 90s. You know, you get to talk to Tom Sabini. Uh, you got to talk about some of his 90s work. You know, you got to talk about uh, his his. His remake of Night of the Living Dead by George Romero, who gave him his first shot, you know, on Dawn of the Dead and uh, earlier movies, uh, is just, it, it's its a really good remake. Uh, and I don't know, if, if people haven't seen it, you should really seek it out. It's really well done, you know, but he was also in From Dust Till Dawn. You know, playing Sex Machine. Um, and he did Two Evil Eyes, working with Argento. You know, um, it, it's there's a lot of great material for '90s uh, that we would love to talk about and love to tackle. And if all this stuff continues to go well, we'd love to do that. And I know we'll eventually end up having those discussions, so I look forward to it. But David, I have to ask you. Like I mentioned, we're we're recording here. It's uh, it's October nineteenth. We're recording. Uh, we're just. Uh, just under two weeks from Halloween. I know things are a little different for all of us right now, but I have to ask you, being the the horror aficionado, the horror movie lover that you are, what is on your docket as far as, you know, when you're not working, when you've got your leisure time, when you're just going to sit back and, and watch some movies, I'm hoping some, some horror movies, some scary movies, what are you watching this 
month? Well, I've, I've had a steady diet, a, a very protein-rich diet of 80s horror <laughs> for the last year <laughs> or two, arguably. Uh, I have the greatest homework in the world by having to watch all these movies again and again and again and discover new ones. And I really enjoy that. But I, I need a palate cleanser. Uh, and for me, it's uh, it's twofold. Uh, I'm currently um, I'm behind, you know, uh, the game a bit, but I'm, I'm playing catch up on Lovecraft Country on HBO. Uh, that's really, really good and really interesting to me. Um, but when it comes to the movies themselves, I definitely go classic and I go spookier. And so the the universal horror films and the hammer horror films are my my uh, my bread and butter, my meat and potatoes. My you know, I'm, I, I'm all I have is really bad analogies, but I'm really enjoying that as my new diet uh, because I feel like. Uh, there, it was a simpler time, uh, and the storytelling was a lot more pure. And uh, the effects, uh, again, going back to the practical nature of it, there's an absolute charm to these movies, and it's it's my comfort blanket to watch. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, Ghost of Frankenstein and then take a break and then Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and then take a break and then watch uh, Curse of Frankenstein or Curse of the Werewolf. If it's got a curse in the title, like pay attention. <laughs> um, I'm really enjoying that. And it, it brings me absolute happiness. Uh, there are a couple movies uh, on, you know, plugging something that I have nothing connected to uh, this new Peacock uh, streaming app that NBC Universal has. Uh, they have all the the Alfred Hitchcock movies. They have all the classic uh, Universal movies, uh, obviously, and it's wonderful because it's all at a fingertip. All, all at your fingertip and click. There are movies that I had always wanted to see, and I never saw the whole thing. I just saw whether it was in the pages of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine or just I'd seen bits and pieces in clip shows. I'd, I'd never seen The Raven with Lugosi and Karloff, and so I finally got to see that recently, and really enjoyed that um i don't i don't i don't think I, i've seen the birds in in decades and uh, a lot of people uh, a lot of the talent when we talk about the original stuff that they love and that influenced them whether it's kelly maroney of chopping mall or kane hotter of the friday the 13th series they both they both singled out the birds as a, a, a real influential film that scared the crap out of them and they still can't look at birds the same way if crows are hopping around them and so i revisited that and uh i really enjoyed that and yeah, so it's uh, it's kind of a steady diet of the classic stuff. You've pushed me over the. I was at the tipping point on on Peacock, because I know it's Universal. That Universal's, you know, it's NBC Universal. You've just pushed me over the edge in a good way, in the sense that <laughs> yes, okay, it's time. It's time for me to to go ahead and lock that down and go ahead and get that app going. Oh, and I want to uh, add one more thing, if uh, I may, because you're asking what I'm watching. Okay. Um, you know, I, I even have less time to read these days. Uh, but I have Stephen King's Cycle of the Werewolf, illustrated by Bernie Wrightson, that I never read. I've read many, many Stephen King stories. And uh, that's one that always just sort of slipped through the cracks. And uh, I finally got a copy, and it's been sitting on my desk and, and, and asking me to read it. And now's the time to do it during this season. And so I'm excited to dive into a little sort of quick, digestible Stephen King werewolf. So you said you, you haven't read it yet, but you You've got it. I've ne I've seen Silver Bullet. I right. know the story. I have it in my hand, but I don't. I, I I'm, now that I'm I'm sort of winding down, even though I'm still working on the film, I can kind of uh, uh, divert myself a little bit. 
uh, and my brain and, and consume some other stuff. And so I'm, I'm excited to dive into that. Book. You have to let me know, because I'm always curious about, you know, I've seen Silver Bullet many, many times. Uh, it's just one of my, uh, one of again, one of my comfort movies from the 1980s. And I'm mm. a big Gary Busey fan in that movie. I think he's terrific in that. I have a couple questions for you. And the first one is super broad. And so I'm not looking for the definitive answer. <laughs> but but you are of course so well versed in in 80s horror movie you you've spent like you said you spent the past 2 years just con- all consuming it but i'm curious david your thoughts on the state of horror in 2020 because i have made the the comparison that with all of the streaming services, we have kind of the same thing that we had in the 80s and the early 90s with tons of, quote, direct-to-video, in this case, mm-hmm. direct-to-video on demand. So I'm curious, you know, your, your your general thoughts on the state of horror in 2020. I think we have, because of all these streaming services, a lot of money is being thrown to projects to for programming. Uh, and I, I think there's a freedom that hasn't been seen in quite some time where the likes of Netflix or HBO Max or uh, other other studios that are that are trying to get into the streaming game um, are happy to say just, oh, it's about this. Here's money. Here's your budget. Make it. Let's put it on. Uh, and that's that's it in terms of the micromanagement uh, about it. And a lot of the filmmakers are, are have been gravitating over the last five to 10 well has it been 10 years with netflix you know um a lot of a lot of really well-known uh filmmakers uh, have said i i'm excited to be with netflix because they just give you the budget they give you the green light and they let you make your movie in peace so i think in terms of horror uh the creativity is back the storytelling is much more solid the the learning curve over what has worked and what has resonated and what is now coming out now and the demands of the audience, which is, of course, a very diversified audience, uh, is that much more appealing to them. Uh, the nostalgia of, of the casting, you know, Barbara Crampton's getting a lot more work these days because people want to see her face. Um, it, it, it's kind of everyone's winning based on it. Uh, and I think uh, when when you go in tougher times as we are right now, uh, from a socio-political standpoint, uh, again, every every decade has its difficulties and its complications from a social and political standpoint, uh, and the films arguably reflect that in some way or another. Some decades, much more. You know, whether you're responding to uh, you know Vietnam, the atomic era, uh, Watergate. Uh, whatever it may be, uh, you know, Reaganomics, all these kind of things, uh, filmmakers are making their statements, whether overtly or more subtly, the horror can be reflecting that. And, and art is what you want it to be. Sometimes if you're, if you've got John Carpenter's They Live, you can't ignore the fact, uh, that it's talking about, you know, media saturation and control and sort of a brand new sort of, uh, Orwellian, uh, society. Um, but there are other films that it's just more, if you want to perceive it that way, you can, or it could be just blood and guts and that's all it is. Uh, I think the same very much is today. You've got similar, uh, very loud responses to what's going on, uh, in the state of the world today overall. And, um, I think it's kind of cool to have things starting to reflect some of the strife that we're experiencing because you get to see uh, different worlds reflected, but you also get that escapism, but the message is there if you want to see it and read it and listen to it. 
Absolutely. Now, this next question is really, again, I'm not looking for... Uh, I'll just, I think what? I gave you a definitive answer when you asked you, for one. You so did you give... You know what? I'll, to be clear, that was definitely the definitive <laughs> answer. Um, I'll be more vague next time. No, no. But with this next one, don't be vague. You'll understand when I ask the question. So... It's interesting because you said you talked about how the, you know, the services are just sort of giving the budgets and saying, make whatever you want to make. So I ask, I pose this hypothetical question to you, David. I am an executive with Netflix. I come to you and say, I would like for you to make a horror movie. I'm going to give you a $10 million budget. I have a couple questions for you, David. What style of horror movie would you make, be it supernatural, creature feature, slasher film? And who would be two actors that you would absolutely cast in whatever horror movie you made? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. That's a, that's a great tough one. Uh, I, I, don't, I would not make a slasher film. Um, I do not gravitate to slashers uh, as much as I gravitate to things that are more phantasmagorical, you know, something more in, in the vein of Nightmare on Elm Street or Phantasm or uh, In the Mouth of Madness, you know, something that's sort of like a psychological, uh, mind-blowing concept. That to me is much more interesting. Is it? Is it really happening? Is it not? Um, Miracle Mile, which is not a horror film, is one of my all-time favorite films uh, because it's very clear what's happening, but halfway through you start questioning if it's happening at all or if it's all in Anthony Edwards' mind. And um, that's the type of uh, Twilight Zone sort of environment that I would want to put my own movie in, but it would probably be more of a creature feature. I'm really enjoying a lot of these movies that are uh, a bunch of uh, carefree folks go on a weekend getaway. You have sort of the the big chill 30-something friendship that, uh, you know, if it's maybe not necessarily going to a cabin in the woods, but, uh, you know, an escape where you're a fish out of water. And next thing you know, you're dealing with extraordinary circumstances that may or may not be real. Uh, that's the movie I would be making. Um, and who would I cast? Um, so many amazing choices. I would, I would go with a, a veteran actor uh, or actress, and I would go with a younger actor uh, or actress, um, to show a little range in terms of, of experience, uh, literally and physically. And, um, boy, do I have to name names? No, I, no, you don't. <laughs> no, no, you certainly, you certainly don't. No. <laughs> Cause there's so many choices, but that's, that's sort of the dynamic that I would go with. Would you go as practical as possible or CGI? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I would go, I would go 99% practical with 1% sweetening with CGI. Sure. So, there, there would always be something on screen that these things that these actors are interacting with. And uh, my biggest complaint is, you know, sometimes CGI is really good, but you still know it's CGI. Arguably, you could say the same thing. You know, practical effects are can be really good, but you still know it's practical. But given the choice between the two, I will go practical each and every time. Um, to me. What, what is more interesting these days are stunts, you know, because they used to do these stunts that were spectacular. And now you can see that a lot of these stunts just aren't, you know, they're CGI'd. And so I would want to craft a moment or a scene that involves practical effects, that involves these actors, and it involves them doing something that it's clearly them. And hopefully I don't kill my actors, you know. But, like, listen, Tom Cruise is, 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 is the greatest special effect, you know, in a Mission Impossible movie because you know that he is performing his own stunts. And that guy is hanging on the side of a plane. He's nuts. 
but you you pay that's the price of admission right there um and and i feel like that's missing i mean you know hooper <laughs> you know jan michael vincent and, and burt reynolds that's a movie just built around let's do a lot of cool stunts and tell a stuntman story and the stunts are real um that the stuff is uh, fundamentally if i believe what i'm seeing on screen i respond to it and and i'd love to see more of that complete off the off the cuff question because we were talking about stunts can you please take me through your first experience viewing mad max fury road in 2015 and your thoughts on that film mad max fury road is one of those magical movie moments where you go see a film i mean i've always been a huge fan Uh, i saw the road for i saw the road warrior in on the big screen when it came out in the theaters and then i discovered mad max on video and then I, I i ran a film club uh at the the boarding school i went to and i put mad max on the big screen and um mad max through and through uh and thunderdome i always felt like half of the film is great half of the film uh, they didn't know what to do so they kind of redid the, the road warrior fundamentally when fury road finally came around i did not have very high expectations because that's just what the way things that the listen you don't want to be disappointed. So expectations, if they're they're nil to below ground, <laughs> is the best way to approach that movie. And that also is the best way to have the greatest movie experience in the world when not only did George Miller deliver, but, you know, bravura effects, uh, uh, outrageous production design, uh, white knuckle beginning to end. Uh, the most creative reinvention of a franchise I had seen in in quite some time. And um, this may or may not be a controversial take on it. Uh, I know I'm not the only one, but I thought Tom Hardy was absolutely fine. I didn't necessarily have to see Mel Gibson. Um, but, I, I, you know, Mel Gibson's personal life and personality problems aside, I would have been fine seeing an older Mad Max but I was fine that they went with Tom Hardy. My problem was that Tom Hardy was a supporting character in his own movie. Yeah. And that was Furiosa's movie through and through. That was Charlie's Theron's movie. Um, and I found that incredibly disappointing because every time I expected Mad Max to, you know, Max Rakitansky to step up in the situation, and arguably he does a couple times. Uh, he doesn't have any bravura moments. He doesn't have heroic moments. He's just sort of there along for the ride, literally chained up. <laughs> and I thought, well, that conceit was kind of cool for a while. How cool that they just chain up his face for half the movie. That's pretty brave. Uh, I Once the chains were off, he wasn't really unchained very much in that film. No, and it's I a, have a couple thoughts, obviously. Yeah, no, and it's interesting because and, and Charlie's Theron is, is, is excellent in the movie. But you're right. It's a mad. It's the movie's called Mad Max. That was the, That's the beginning of it. Uh, well, I have to just roll into this next question because they just announced the the prequel Furioso. And given that you said you had such tempered expectations for this for 2015's Fury Road, do you again attempt to temper those expectations rolling into this next prequel that will be coming out? Every time I see a movie, I, I am cautiously optimistic. Uh, I've done I've done many things to improve my own personal movie going experience, and one is uh, I never watch the trailers anymore. Uh, sometimes I, I mean that that's not a blanket statement in that. Like, I'll watch a teaser trailer, but sometimes I won't even watch the whole thing. I'll watch the first half just to see, yes, this is indeed what I signed up for. Okay, I know I'll see it. And then I stop there because I do not want uh, spoilers. 
I do not want perceived spoilers. I do not want to set my expectations based on something where, you know, the worst thing in the world for me is, is, is watching a movie and, and enjoying it and then or not. And then just saying, wait, they still haven't done this, this and this because I remember it in the trailer. When's it going to come? Uh, I, I like to see a story as it unfolds. I don't I don't want to or need to be ahead of the story. I want to experience it organically. And so whether it's the new Bond movie, whether it's the, the you know, the brand new Dune that's coming coming out, uh, whether it's a new Star Wars film, I, I want it to be as spoiler-free as possible. So, yeah, Furiosa, Furiosa, um, George Miller's doing it. So I, I hope it will be great. Um, I'm actually not thinking about it very much. Okay. Uh, I mean, it still has to be made. They, these things take a long time, um, especially with George Miller. Yes, yes. And I, um, it's interesting you invoked a memory there. I, on my podcast back in 2015, I famously documented the entire year of not watching a trailer for The Force Awakens. Oh, so, good. So I actually successfully pulled that off. I wasn't able to, it was very difficult, as you can imagine, because that was one of the most marketed movies in the world in history. But I did go into my first viewing of The Force Awakens with only seeing the one sheets of the characters and not having any reference points. So I, 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 I walked away, obviously, loving that movie because you said it perfectly, David. And it's, I don't want to go on this tangent about trailers, but I'm going to cite, you know, for example, watching the four minute trailer for Hobbs and Shaw in the theater it literally <laughs> shows the entire movie it shows right. the and I and I think that's poor I don't know I don't want to say poor marketing decision but I literally said to myself watching that trailer well I don't need to see this because I've seen the movie I'll tell you a very interesting experience that I had that has to do with the marketing of films. And that was with um, Andrew Garfield as the amazing Spider-Man. And when that film came out, right before it came out, Sony went on an absolute marketing blitz where multiple trailers, extended clips, uh, all sorts of stuff uh, for shows to cover. I worked at Entertainment Tonight at the time. Uh, and I uncovered at a certain point Someone had put together, because so much material, all new material from that movie uh, came out, that someone put a, a, a cut of the film together that was about 40 minutes long. And it was the entire movie beginning to end in 40 minutes. And uh, I had just had a child, my first, you know, my, my, my son, and there was no way that I was going to get to the movie theater. And so I watched that 40-minute cut when I was at work one one day, uh, and I was like, okay, this is cool. He makes a good Spider-Man. I like him. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not down on the CGI lizard. That's disappointing, but I think this is pretty good. It's pretty well done. You know, good good for them. I, I would have been happy with more Tobey Maguire, but if this is what you're giving me, I'll eat it up. And Anyway, my point of my story is that um, – my son is now old enough to be really into Spider-Man and watching all the Marvel movies. And we've seen all that he likes. He loves he, Tobey Maguire is his Spider-Man. Uh, he loves uh, uh, Tom Holland. And I said, well, there's these Andrew Garfield movies, too. Do you want to check them out? He's like, well, I don't know. Are they good? I'm like, well, let's, you know, make your decision. You know, it's kind of like, you know, there's a different Batman. There's a different James Bond. You know, well, now there's a different Spider-Man. Let's check it out. OK. And we watched it. And as I'm watching this movie, I'm realizing, because I thought I saw it, I never saw this movie. I never saw it. And I'm watching it because I, I was convinced that I had seen it. And then I realized, again, that <laughs> all I had seen was this 40-minute trailer. So there, were, there was a scene here and a scene there where I'm like, 
is this like the director's cut? What is this that I'm watching? I don't know. My point is that, uh, you know, people can, uh, movie studios can really saturate the market with material because they don't have confidence or they, they, they already have such a built-in audience. They want to guarantee that they return for another helping. And uh, like you, I, I'm just very, I, I'm very proud of you that you are capable <laughs> of, of avoiding all the, uh, the trailer uh, material because you know, don't you want to enjoy a movie you know you already know you're going to see it yeah you know can't you wait can't you wait to open that package on christmas why do you have to you know rip rip the the wrapping paper in the closet and take a peek at what you're going to get i have always said when it comes to those major tentpole franchise films the star wars the marvel films the one she could just say star wars december 15th and and you probably are going to get 98% of the the audience that was going to go see it. One of the biggest moments that really infuriated me was when I saw the trailer for Captain America Civil War and they put the stinger of Spider-Man in the trailer mm-hmm. and I just I remember just audibly saying out loud to my friends when we were in the theater like, "Why did they do that?" Did they think no one could you imagine the reaction that would have gotten it when people were seeing the movie? And I was just very like, no one's not gonna see this movie. Like everyone is gonna go see this film. Why would they why wouldn't they save that surprise for when you saw the movie? I mean, the fact that they kept spoiler alert what happens to Harrison Ford uh, a secret for The Force Awakens, the fact that that was kept secret is is astounding in this day and age. Yeah, well, they had to plead. It was sort of like a crying game thing. Please don't reveal the big twist. Yeah. I, I could actually pinpoint the trailer that that turned me off of trailers. Oh, for please, good. please. Uh, and that was for Alien Three. Uh, so Alien Three, I was excited to see. I knew I was going to see it, and I watched that trailer. I'm like, wow, they're on this prison planet. This is a whole new look. This is a cool concept. Uh, and then they show the stinger moment where the alien's face is right next to Ripley's, where she's you know recoiling in terror and the tongue comes out and he's right there and i was just like i cannot believe you just put that in the trailer you just this clearly is is one at least for me would be probably the one of the best moments of the movie and now that's all i can think about when's that gonna happen and and now i know that happens and you know it's ripley i'm sure she survives she's not gonna die so it's like sucked all the all the oxygen out of the excitement of of what potential that had for me and that was what and i was angry that was 92 so that was i think 91 92 93 someone that area that was almost 30 years ago oh and they i've been mad ever since and they just say uh real quick because i know we gotta wrap this up here in a minute you bring up alien 3 i have to ask you have you seen the assembly cut of that movie no i haven't i haven't and i would that i i stand by i'm one of those few people who actually stands by alien 3 as as i like it uh flaws and all uh my biggest problem with it uh other than getting over the fact that you know newt and hicks died in the first 10 seconds you know it was revealed that they were dead uh that of course was a shock but that's a story choice they made and in in the decades that have passed <laughs> i've gotten used to the, that's the story they were telling but my biggest problem was the cgi yep. alien yeah um that i i would have i wanted you know and, and i know that uh, amalgamated dynamics tom woodruff jr and alec gillis uh they did uh, i've seen in front of my own face uh i've been I've, I've seen those those practical effects that they made for that movie um that are, are fantastic and and photorealistic and um knowing what was made 
and what sort of got replaced by CGI even back then with, you know, the, the alien crawling on the ceiling and running around at the end, uh, I, I would have been perfectly satisfied with a, a man in a suit. Uh, and I would have believed it and I would have bought it and I would have been much more interested. I'll, I'll put a real emphasis on, you know, I think you would really enjoy the assembly cut. Uh, I, I actually, I, I'm with you. I, I do like Alien 3, but the assembly cut, I think, is an enhancement on the story. Now, there are some subtle differences uh, as far as, you know, well, I don't want to spoil it for you, but when you see mm-hmm. it, you'll understand that there are there are some some differences, and it's about 40 minutes longer, but oh, it's, it's closer to what Fincher was really trying to do with sure. the film. Charles Dance, Charles Dutton, uh, uh, Sigourney Weaver with her shaved head for a reason. Uh, It all was really great stuff. I mean, it was a great character character drama. It looked great. Uh, It was a radical departure for the direction of the series. All those things were really good things. Uh, And I was I was sort of undermined by. Uh, and, and and that's obviously a much larger story about the movie, that movie, because that was not Fincher's vision. So there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen on that one. Uh, and so the result was definitely underwhelming. So I, I'd definitely be interested in seeing that. Absolutely. And it's, I know it's available on the, I think it's the Blu-ray uh, box set that has the first four movies on it. So, um, but you know, David... Just like last time I had you on here, I realized that you and I could probably keep this conversation going for uh, the next few hours, it, it, <laughs> at least as least as long as the uh, In Search of Darkness films, because I, I, right, right. I always have a great time talking with you. Hours to go. For those, again, what, can you just go ahead and go over the website again, In Search of Darkness? Part two, there's a pre-sale on it right now that goes from between now the 19th of October through October 31st. And just talk a little bit more about the website and what's available. Yeah, absolutely. Go to 80shorrordoc.com and you can get the movie, physical copy, digital copies, posters and and, and soundtrack and all sorts of cool stuff, uh, as well as a 12-month pass to this active, active community with watch parties and interactions with uh, the stars from the movies themselves and, and, and well-known people who are very uh, uh, knowledgeable about the films you're watching. You know, we do a commentary throughout these films. And uh, it's very cool stuff that I think uh, if you're a horror fan and if you're a nostalgic person, uh, boy, you put those those two movies together, you've got nine hours of material with part one and part two. And then you have uh, a 12-month uh, experience that you can dip into whenever you want to connect with, with like-minded fans. I think that's a really cool thing you know so 80s horrordoc.com uh and it's between now and the 31st at midnight and halloween night and um it's not we have no plans uh for any other release this is it so if you're like well i'll wait for it to be on itunes i'll wait for it to be on shutter i'll wait for it to be on amazon it's actually there's no plans to put it on there so um you know now's the time to jump on the opportunity if you're interested in seeing it because all the people who did like you dana uh, are going to be like it was great you should have taken advantage of it when you were offering it because i i I don't know what to tell you i I don't know how you could find it go on ebay it's you know selling for three times as much as it was when it was offered you know before halloween that's that's it's the same story that happened last time it's going to happen again and uh so i guess it's a cautionary tale if you're into physical media or you want to see what the hype is about uh, but yeah 80s horror doc.com uh my socials are uh if you go on twitter i'm tiki ambassador and i have a, a genre pop culture website of my own called it came from blog.com so if you go on twitter or facebook or instagram or tumblr even you could go to at it came from blog and 
and that's the best way to interact with me. Uh, I'm pretty active on on Twitter, so uh, happy to chit chat with people. Oh, and I can't wait. And again, I just want to urge people like jump on this opportunity as soon as you and I are done talking. I'm I'm doing it. I'm I can't wait. And if you if you need to understand like. Watch the first film. It's on Shutter right now. If you want to get an idea of what we're talking about, In Search of Darkness is available on Shutter right now. I can't wait for In Search of Darkness Part 2. David, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I know this will not be the last time you and I chat. So right, good luck with, with the launch of the movie. I'm excited to see it. And you're going to be hearing from me after I watch it because I. <laughs> this is one of those rare opportunities I get from when I'm hosting this show is that I see an awesome movie. I get an opportunity to reach out to to, you know, the director of it. And and so I'm, you're going to get the first review from me, I promise. I, I can't wait to see this film. Thanks for being on the Dana Buckler Show. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dana. It's a, always a pleasure to chat with you. And I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it because there's lots to talk about and it's real fun. And happy Halloween, everybody. And happy Halloween. My name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.